This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver. If you are listening for the first time, thank you for joining us. Christy and I are Advanced Placement International Baccalaureate High School Teachers from Memphis, Tennessee. And last week, we finished our discussion over Lorraine Hansberry's great play, Raisin in the Sun. As you know by now, we look at these plays not as experts in any one field of literary criticism, but as generalists, looking at them via traditional, pragmatic, or romantic approaches instead of modern or or postmodern schools of thought. As we wrap up our discussion over Raisin in the Sun, we thought it would not be doing Hansberry's work justice if we did not reflect on the poem from which the play derives its title, as well as the author who wrote that poem, Langston Hughes. That's right. And to take it even one step further, we want to look at the poem Mother to Son, as well as A Dream Deferred, because that's the poem she originally picked to be the inspiration for the play. But before we do that... Christy, who is Langston Hughes? Langston Hughes is probably one of the most recognizable names in the study of modern American poetry. In fact, once you get past the American romantics or the transcendentalists like Emily Dickinson and Edgar Allan Poe, Langston Hughes and Robert Frost are really the only two poets most Americans can even remember anything about, if they remember those two. What most people don't know, though, unlike the other names I just mentioned, is that Hughes wrote poetry, fiction, short stories, plays, autobiographies, academic criticisms, children's stories, editorials for periodicals, newspapers, translations of great Spanish writers such as Frederico Garcia Lorca. He made a huge mark writing over 50 years of American history, and not any 50 years, if there is such a thing as any 50 years of history, but during a time period where African Americans were really making some great contributions into art and literary works uh, of the American, crossing the American landscape. In fact, he's part of the originators of a very fascinating period that today we call the Harlem Renaissance. What can you tell us about that? 
Well, I'm going to tell you a few things about the Harlem Renaissance because, you know, if you drag me along for the ride, I have to have historical context. <laughs> I know. Because these authors don't write in a void or vacuum they create out of their world. So the Harlem Renaissance was, um, if you want to give it a rough time period, it's going to be post-World War One up until the, the early 1930s when the Great Depression strikes. And Harlem is a neighborhood in New York City for our non-American listeners. And it was a time period where we had what W.E.B. Du Bois terms the first great black migration. You had uh, a large number of African Americans moving out of the South for the first time. And a lot of them had, for various reasons, become attracted to the Harlem neighborhood and moved in there. So what you end up with is this very interesting cultural experience of Southern African Americans moving to the white North. So there's going to be a lot of culture clashes that are going to emerge out of that. But we had the first great migration. There's also kind of what's called the Caribbean diaspora. There were a large number of people out of that part of the country or the world that ended up in Harlem. And uh, so we end up with this cultural flowering that occurs during this time period. And I want to point out, from the end of the Civil War to the beginning of the Harlem Renaissance is only 55 years. That's one lifetime. So that shows you how rapid changes we're moving from slavery to this huge uh, cultural explosion that's going to go on by 1920. Anyway, cultural history is always important, so I like to throw that out there. And also, uh, in history, the only thing that's interesting is change over time. So that's what we look at. Now, what will emerge there? We're going to have several things. We're going to have writers like Langston Hughes. It'll be a gathering place for authors and playwrights. Uh, we're going to spawn the only truly original music form that's American, and that's jazz. So jazz will become a music form. It's considered rebellious during that time period. It's experimental. It's improvisational. And it's going to draw huge crowds because of that, black and white both. Uh, we have famous actors like Paul Robeson that will move to Harlem uh, after he's going to Columbia Law School. So what we have here is the Southern black experience meeting the Harlem experience, and they're just light years apart. And it creates all kind of cultural tension and creativity. I want to give you just some quick other American historical issues going on at the same exact time that we've got the Harlem Renaissance exploding. It's the Roaring Twenties. That decade in American history is really taught largely as the decade of the clash of the modern versus the traditional. That was the big social tension during that time period. It's the first time in American history that more Americans had lived in cities than they did on farms. So it was a reversal of what had been the American tradition before them. Uh, the total wealth in the United States had doubled during that decade. It was the beginning of radio advertising and the birth of mass culture. We also have prohibition and gangsterism. There's the communist red scare that goes on at the same time. At the same time, we have Darwin becoming popular in the Scopes Monkey Trial, postmodernism, first mass communications, the automobiles being mass produced for the first time. There's going to be a huge anti-foreigner uh, sentiment during that time period, a rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan that's very nativist. And what that means is they're just anti-anybody not born here. Um, so we have the 19th Amendment that's going to give women the right to vote. 
We've got the first talking movies in full-length cartoons. Charles Lindbergh crosses the Atlantic. There's a birth control movement. The United States emerges as a world power for the first time, undisputed. So, that's the background. That's the context. The 1920s are a churning cultural decade. And into that steps Langston Hughes and all the other writers of the Harlem Renaissance. Well, he does have the distinction of being the first African-American to earn a living as a writer. And truly, it's an impressive body of work that covers over 16 volumes of poetry alone. Three short story collections, two novels, nine children's stories, 20 plays, never mind the long list of scripts for radio, TV, and film. And just his selected letters, which were recently published in two. Uh, 2015 just those are over 500 pages long so we're talking about an extremely prolific person who wrote in large part about the common african-american experience as he saw it uh, in urban harlem i know he 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 kind of he's going to go a couple directions but his most popular stuff really uh speaks uh to what he saw in harlem so uh let's talk a little bit about where he was born because he was born in your neck of the woods Gary in Missouri but in 1902 how far is Joplin from Kansas City oh Joplin is directly south of Kansas City I want to guess it's about three to four hours south of Kansas City all right well interestingly enough um by the way it's down there in the corner next to Arkansas and Oklahoma oh okay that's uh is that about five hours from Memphis, too? Probably about that, that length of time, yes. All right. Well, we could get there if we needed to. Interestingly enough, his parents uh, have unusual family origins. They're very gifted intellectually, both his mother and his father. But when asked about his race, uh, Hugh said that he regretted the fact that he can't really call himself black. He said, and I'm going to quote, I am not black. He made the distinction that he was, quote, Negro. Now, that's a term we really don't use anymore, and I actually had to look it up to see what he meant when he said that. He goes on to say uh, in his biography that a Negro was someone who had any black blood. He described his father as darker brown and his mother as olive yellow. Both of his grandfathers on his dad's side were white, and one grandmother on his mom's side was white, and his other grandmother was Native American. I think she was Cherokee, but I could be wrong. I think that's what it, I think that's right, though. Both of his parents, uh, although because they were Negro, in other words, we would call them mixed-race, uh, variety of shades. So his family looked like a modern family, honestly, back back in those times. But uh, they were recipients of educational and economic discrimination that, of course, was prevalent all over the United States at that time, but more so, I think, in the rural communities. His, his parents divorced, and his dad moved out of the country, first to Cuba and then to Mexico, believing that he could get a better shot at economic success in another country, which actually turned out to be true. And this is a great place for us to start talking about his poetry because before we get to the two poems that really made their mark on Raising in the Sun, it's worth looking at Hugh's first poem that was ever published, The Negro Speaks of Rivers. All right, Gary, you going to try to read that for us? The Negro Speaks of Rivers. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than a flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. 
I bathed in Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo, and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans, and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. Well, first of all, this poem tells a proud story. It highlights both the cultural depth of African roots of, uh, of an African culture, but it also uh, combines that with the American heritage that is part of, of his origin. The structure of this poem is really non-traditional, and he uses, not just in this poem, but his, a characteristic of his style in general is to try to incorporate kind of a blues quality into the writing. So you see this in the fact that there's a lot of repetition like you would think of in blues. I've known rivers. You could almost sing that. I've known rivers. I've known rivers, ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood and human veins. So there's going to be this um, this beat, this cadence that kind of sings out to you just as if you were singing the words instead of just speaking the words. I want to point out um, where he was when he wrote this poem. He was on a train to go to Mexico to get money from his father to go to Columbia University, which he actually did. And while he was on the train, he go he rolls over the Mississippi River and he pulls this out uh, and he kind of sketches it down. Um, and his autobiography, he talks about this that he looked out the window, uh, which we can see by the way from the bluffs of Memphis, and he just quickly jotted these these words down as he thought of them. And I think, uh, if you know anything about American poetry, I think he kind of borrows a little bit of the style of Walt Whitman. That's just my thinking, because he does this strategy called cataloging. And cataloging is when you list stuff. And look what he does. The second stanza, which is only four lines, well, sort of, then they indent, but it goes, I bathed, I built, I looked, I heard. And he has this subject-verb kind of alignment that lists out all the things they're going to catalog the American or the African-American experience to him. So he's going on to say, I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient in the world and older than the flow of human blood and human veins. Well, when you see that, you have to decide, well, who's the I here? Can't be him. He hasn't known all that stuff. Well, he's an embodying kind of a timeless soul of what it is to be an African-American. And, and the African-American has blood, ancient blood. Then he goes on to chronicle what that means. I bathed in the Euphrates. The Euphrates is where civilization is said to become, where the Garden of Eden is said to be. I bathed in the Euphrates. He goes to say, I built my hut near the Congo. I looked upon the Nile. Of course, these are all old, ancient rivers of Africa. And he's going to reference the pyramids. And then he's going to shift to an American experience. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans. And, of course, you're talking about emancipation. I went, so the rivers cried out, so to speak, whenever uh, Abe Lincoln uh, announces that there will be no more slavery in America. And he ends it with saying, well, no, before he, he ends the stanza saying, I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. 
And muddy is a bit of a tactile image. It can be considered negative. No one likes to be muddy, but it doesn't feel muddy. I mean, it doesn't feel muddy. It does feel muddy. It doesn't feel negative here. It seems kind of nice and friendly and, and happy, muddy bosom, golden in the sunlight. sunlight. So it's beautiful. And he ends it with saying, again, repetition like you would expect in any kind of blues song. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep. He goes back to this crossing, really the expanse of time and space of, of this, this soul that is linking the African-American experience across time, across space, like a river would, uh, into a world, into a soul that maybe perhaps is much larger than that. So that was his thought as he crossed the Mississippi River. I don't know if you get that effect today when you go. Well, no. Well, he's uh, using the classical idea of going from the particulars to the universals. Yes, he reversed poetry. that. Yeah, he yeah. did. And I want to point out this too. Well, first of all, how old was he when he wrote this poem? I know. He's, I think he was 18. Yes. I mean, this is how you start your career at 18, writing a classic poem. Um, but I also want to go back to the blues structure that you were talking about because blues is um, native to our part of the country. It's a huge deal here. But blues is derived from gospel music. And the blues in the gospel has what's called a call and response. It gives you a line uh, like a preacher would sing in front of a congregation and then the choir repeats the line back. And so blues music has this, this call and then the group repeats it back. And it has a very definite cadence to it and a very different predictability to it. In fact, that's what signifies blues music. The chord changes are simple, but the variations on the chord changes are infinitely complex and original. But it does have certain characteristics, and the call and response is one of them, and that shows up in this poem. And it has kind of a darker quality, I feel like this this poem does. It's, I don't know why it feels a little sad. Maybe... Uh... We'd have to really look at the words more closely than I wanted to give time to today. But it, it does feel this mellow, melancholy, perhaps, mood shift that's so common that I think of when I listen to blues today. Well, what's also interesting, too, is this whole idea. He's dealing with your philosophy, which I'm going to throw out here for the first time, your philosophy of speckness. <laughs> and uh, this is an idea that... that that you've talked about that I think is really humorous and entertaining. It's the whole idea of getting used to the fact that you're a speck in the universe. And he's having a little bit of a speck moment here. Here I am, young 18-year-old boy on a train, but yet in the history of the universe, we've got all these rivers that are going all these directions, carrying all these histories and all these events, and I'm a little tiny speck. And he's in awe of that fact. You know, I'm part of this great, big, awesome thing that is both negative and positive. It has sorrow, it has joy, and it's going to be all these different things that have been part of the the human experience, older than the flow of human blood, so predating maybe even uh, human blood and human veins. I'm spend any more time talking about that because I want to shift gears to talk about uh, the the poem that really gave um, inspiration uh, to our play. By age 20, Hughes had already published this poem, the second poem, Mother to Son. Uh, the poem was written from the perspective of a black woman speaking to her son. It's written in dialect to echo the way an undereducated black woman would sound. I'll try to read the poem because I'm a woman. It's from the perspective of a woman. 
but I can tell you right now, I can't do it justice. I just don't have the voice for it. The poem, Mother of the Sun, specifically, though, uh, really is about his grandmother. Gary, do you know anything about his grandmother specifically? Um, his grandmother, her name was Mary Patterson Langston. Her first husband was a white man who died in the Browns Ferry Raid. Now, historically, why is that important? That was a raid in Northern Virginia to try to start a slave rebellion just previous to the Civil War back in 1857. Um, her second husband was an active abolitionist and activist for black education. She herself was a vivid storyteller and, according to Hughes's autobiography, spent hours telling him uh, heroic stories of slaves who escaped slavery or other feats of nobility of black freemen. Hughes famously said this, Through my grandmother's stories, always life moved. It moved heroically toward an end. Nobody ever cried in my grandmother's stories. They worked or they schemed or they fought, but no crying. So according to Hughes, she taught him the value of humor as a shield from pain. And although this poem isn't funny, it does embody the spirit of perseverance. All right, Christy. Give it a go. All right. I'm going to try. Uh, it's written in dialect, and dialect is a little difficult. I don't want to try to sound like I'm sounding pretentious, but I do want to be on, respectful to the text and try to read it exactly as it's written. He changed the spelling of several words. That's what I mean when I say when it's written in dialect. So it, what, it's not spelled correctly according to the dictionary. But, but isn't it, this a technique that Mark Twain used in his book? Oh, yes. Lots of people okay. did it. But you know, it's a little controversial to try to, to okay. read something like this. But she says, well, son, I'll tell you. Life for me ain't been no crystal stare. It's had tacks in it and splinters and boards torn up and places with no carpet on the floor. Bare. But all the time, I's been a climbing on, and reaching landings, and turning corners, and sometimes going in the dark where there ain't been no light. So, boy, don't you turn back. Don't you set on the steps because you finds it's kinder hard. Don't you fall now, for I's still going, honey. I's still climbing. Life for me ain't been no crystal stair. All right. Let's talk about that one. Um, well, first of all, you can clearly tell that it's from uh, the perspective of a mother. Uh, in terms of the, the style of writing, this poem is very syncopated. So he's moving away from jazz, I mean, blues into kind of a jazz feel where you jump around and hop and you don't have any kind of structured pa pattern. If you were to look at it, you'll see lots of commas and dashes and spaces. So it, the lines aren't very long, almost like a staircase itself would be. But it starts off with this image, and it says, Life for me ain't been no crystal stair. Well, this is a visual image, but I want to point out that there is no such thing as a crystal stair. You can't make a staircase out of crystal. So she's using this hyperbolic visual image, because if you could make a staircase out of crystal, it would be absolutely glorious. It would shine in the light, and it would be unbelievably expensive, and it would be just this perfect thing. And so, of course, she's trying to say, life for me hasn't been perfect. And that's what mm -hmm. we call in English a light OT, just because you can tell that she's so undereducated that the idea is her life has probably been extremely difficult. Uh, it's been 
It's had tax in it. And of course, all this imagery talking about pain, um, tax and splinters and boards torn up in places with no carpet on the floor. You have visual imagery of poverty and things that can't be repaired and things that are broken. And then there's one line that has just one word on it and it says bear. In other words, there's been moments of loneliness, of nothingness, emptiness. So she's had all these struggles and then she has this one word that says bear. Then she's going to shift the tone and she's going to say, but all the time I've been a climbing on and you see the, the cadence again and reach and landings and turn in corners. There's your jazz, I mm-hmm. think, kind of kicking in. So, you know, I'm moving, I'm moving, I'm moving. Sometimes going in the dark, you have this imagery of dark. There ain't been no light. So, boy, and this is where you can hear the scowl, or she's scolding him, don't you turn back, because he's had something clearly less difficult than she's had. She says, who do you think you, look at me. Look at, you think you have problems? So, boy, don't you turn back. Don't you sit down on the steps because you find it's kind of hard. So you're weak. Get up. Stop it. Don't you fall now. Fry's still going, honey. And you have this tenderness at the end. Eyes still climbing. And life for me ain't been no stare. So she ends it with the, the image that she started with. Well, and I want to make a musical observation here because Langston Hughes did purposely try to use a musical style when he wrote. Uh, this is a very much a song format. So here's your verse. But all the time I've been climbing on and reaching landings and turning corners and something's going in the dark where there ain't been no light. In popular music, you end the verse and then boom, you hit the chorus. And the chorus is the payoff. It is the big, huge selling point of the song. So she says, I've been doing this. I've been doing this. You add it all up. What does it mean? We get to the chorus. And the chorus, if this were a pop song, would be, so boy, don't turn your back. Don't you step down. Don't sit down on the steps because you find it's kind of hard. Don't you fall now for I still go on, honey. I still been climbing. And then... It ends in the very last sentence with the title of the poem, which every song is supposed to do. When you do the chorus of a song, you always put the title of the song in the chorus. And so this very much does have a blues feel to it. And also I want to point out, has an element of folk art. Mm-hmm. Uh, folk art is art you know, about common people, that common people write. And this is about a common woman. And it's meant to honor and glorify not just his grandmother, but all of... Because the African-American tradition has a history of strong females um, taking leadership in their communities. And and he honors this in various times all throughout his life in various different pieces. Uh, But we would call that, you know, today we'd say, well, that's folk art. You're identifying with the common man and exploring what's beautiful about that. Well, and that's what popular music and blues music is. It's folk oriented. All right. Um, So lastly, we want to highlight the poem from which the play gets its name, Harlem, A Dream Deferred. Now, the first two poems were from the early years of his career, and now we're heading towards the end of his career with this poem. That's true. This poem was published in 1951. That's 30 years after the other two. And the opening line uh, really embodies his own rage. This poem has a very different feel about it against racist practices. Although the thematic concept of deferring your dreams 
can speak to a lot of different things. I talk to my kids about it when we study this film, all the things that can defer your dreams. They're not just issues of race, but in his mind, what he, that was what he had on his mind when he wrote the poem, he was thinking about the American dream of freedom from oppression and liberty. And he wants to extend uh, the American dream to blacks and what he has been called, what he's called a dream within a dream. So what this poem basically is going to do is catalog various visions of psychological ramifications of deferring dreams. And of course, he's not the only African-American to do this. A lot of African-Americans in this time, they were angry and they were basically saying enough is enough. We see Dr. King writing in the Birmingham jail, you know, what the the answer to that he was given when he was trying to start this racial move or the protest movement was just wait, we'll get it done. We'll get it done. And he said, is 340 years not long enough? So you see this sense of urgency. And that's what Hughes had in mind when he writes the poem. I also want to point this out too, that there is a historical link between this poem and Martin Luther King's, I have a dream speech that was done in August of 1963 on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Weren't they friends? They were friends. And uh, as a matter of fact, um, when uh, in 1956, when King is, is uh, preaching on a Mother's Day sermon, he reads the, the poem Mother to Son to his wife. It was her first Mother's Day Aww. at church. But their relationship was a little bit guarded because Langston Hughes had had some historical connections to the Communist Party. And um, so King, who was being... Uh, you know, he didn't com- want to get sidetracked yeah, or that, well, derailed, Because really. I'm telling you, being connected with communism in the late 50s was the death sentence for a lot, a lot of careers and a lot of I, people who were leaders and thinkers of the time period. So he kept his distance because of that. Well, um, let's read the poem, uh, and then we'll talk about it. Okay. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore? and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? All right, structurally, you're going to see the same kind of um, jazz style and improvisational style that we saw in Mother to Son. You see a lot of the spacing. There's a lot of empty space, again, uh, like you've seen before. The rhythm in this one, though, unlike Mother of the Sun that had kind of this cadence and and the river poem also had a, a cadence, the rhythm is changing in this one. And, and there's really no comfortable way to read this poem. You're likely to mess up multiple times trying to read this poem. And that's by design. He wants to make it difficult to read because that supports what he's trying to say. What happens to a dream deferred? Well, things get messed up and they become difficult. And that's reflected in the very way that he wrote the words on the page, which I find that's kind of interesting and unique. Writers always do that. Structure and sound support meaning. They can't give meaning because there is no meaning in structure, but they can bring out or draw attention to whatever it is that you're trying to say. And in this case, the difficulty of reading this poem is reflected in the way that he tried to write it. So let me just point out, structurally, you've got really um, a series of rhetorical questions. I think five, uh, if I've counted them correctly. And he's asking, basically, what happens when you put off 
your dream. And the dream that he's talking about is the American dream. But like I said before, he doesn't make it just about that uh, by design. What happens to a dream deferred? And then he's going to use to reflect his answer. He never actually answers the question, but he starts out with a lot of food images, which I find important because food sustains life. And so he wanted to make comparisons with something that you have to have in order to live. The idea behind that being there is something about a dream that you have to have it in order to stay alive. So what happens to a dream deferred? And he starts to suggest, does it dry up? And he's going to hint this as assimilate, like a raisin in the sun. So you see this atrophying, this exhaustion, psychological state of, of just being worn out. Then he's going to say, fester like a sore, an unhealing wound, which is gross. That's the grossest, I think, of all the dim images. If you can think of a boil that, that won't heal and the pus is coming out. It's more gross than the rotted meat. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's competitive. All right. Stink like rotted meat. A foulness. You know, just a foulness that pervades the air. And it's not just about you at that point. You see it going past you and entering into your environment. And then the the image that always throws my kids. Can we read this out loud? Everyone says, there's nothing negative about sugar. Nothing can be too sweet. Well, that's arguable at best. <laughs> but I think he's saying, you know, it can be. You can sugar something over to the point that it's foul. It's not real. It's its, its own sense of nastiness. You can do that by putting on too much perfume. Yes. Yeah, too <laughs> much. But it's the idea that Maybe you're not being reasonable. You've redefined your reality. You're saying this is good because you've made it sweet, but it's not. So then he goes on to say, then there's a space. Like you're going to take a pause to think. And then he says, maybe it just sags like a heavy load. And we're back to that tired image again. But then the last image is the strongest one. And this one I really think is where we see the reflection of African-Americans and civil rights because he says this, or does it explode? And you see this prophetic tone to suggest you put off this dream enough, it's going to blow up and it's really going to be horrible. And I think we can, you can tell me if this is wrong, but I really think we can thank Dr. King for containing that explosion and our transition through the civil rights era was really nonviolent to a large degree. Well, I wouldn't say containing as much as channeling and organizing and directing it like a laser more than anything else. And effectively navigating uh, a problem that potentially could have been just another civil war. Well, and I want to say this too. The Harlem Renaissance is like the civil rights movement in that nobody was in charge. Whenever in one of the great uh, sub areas to study in U.S. history is reform movements and because we have lots of them and reform movements never have anyone in charge they emerge because somehow there is this feeling about a particular topic that affects so many people so strongly that groups begin to pop up the civil rights movement is like that it, it's not an organized movement in the beginning and it eventually will end up having northern and southern versions of it so anyway all that and i want to say this too that i think is interesting one and we've mentioned this before in earlier podcasts one of the things we like about authors and writers is that they're 
sometimes they're like the canaries in the coal mine. They detect the cultural change before everybody else does. Well, I'm going to modify that comment because as a literary person, I don't think they're the canary. I think they're creating the social movement. I think, you know, if there were not Langston Hughes and the Harlem Renaissance in the 20s and 30s, they're the academic support and and where all these things came out of the civil rights movement, I'm going to suggest emerged from a lot of the thinking and artists deserve the credit. Just Well, saying. I won't withhold any credit, <laughs> but one of the things that's always discussed in U.S. history, especially about individuals, did they lead the movement or were they a result of the movement? And those discussions are unending and you can argue them all you want, which is part of the fascination of the growth of a reform movement, whether it's the Harlem Renaissance or the Civil Rights Movement. It's like you can't peg day one where it began and how uh, it took on all these aspects. It grows and takes on a life of its own. And then you have people that become part of it, and do they lead it or do they reflect it? Well, maybe you can argue that, but what you can't argue is that the writings that we read today in their own merit are truly, truly beautiful pieces of work, and I'm very proud that they're a part of our American heritage. Well, me too. And uh, thank you for joining us today. If you liked our podcast and our poetry supplement, well, please contact us and let us know. Um, Give us your thoughts, your observations, your musings. Uh, Follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, like I say, skywriting, whatever everybody is using during that time period. Uh, Hit subscribe and join us for future books. And thanks for coming on the ride with us. Peace out. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.